This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. Linda Cohen here with you. Well, in the last 20 years, close to 1 million suspected cases of meningitis were reported among the countries of the African meningitis belt, including approximately 100,000 deaths. So what do we need to know about this potentially deadly disease and what can be done to prevent it and to treat it? Here with some answers is Dr. Joseph Domikowski. He's a pediatric infectious disease specialist and the director of the Global Maternal Health and Pediatric Health Program at Upstate Medical University. Welcome, Dr. Domikowski. Thanks, Thanks so much for coming in. You bet, Linda. It's always Thank a you. pleasure to have you here. Um, let's begin by helping our listeners understand what we mean by meningitis. What exactly is it? Yeah, men meningitis is inflammation of these membranes around your brain. They give you, uh, when they get inflamed, they give you a nasty headache. Um, sensitivity, bright light, and usually a fever. So I understand, and this is something that's come up many times when I've talked about meningitis in the past, that there are more. there's more than one kind, one kind being very serious and one less so. Help us understand the differences. Yeah, so bacterial meningitis, which is the really scary stuff that you hear about, these outbreaks at university campuses, that's bacterial meningitis. That's the stuff that can rapidly progress and cause serious injury, even death, very quickly. Then we have the, what we call the aseptic meningitis, usually caused by viruses, but there are certain kinds of bacteria that can cause aseptic meningitis. And Milder, less... but still very unpleasant. Unpleasant, but not life-threatening. Correct. Okay, so the bacterial is the one you really have to watch out for and Absolutely. be very concerned about. So, I mean, when we talk about the bacterial meningitis, what kinds of bacteria are responsible? Are they everywhere? I mean, where do these exist, these bacteria? I mentioned, for example, this African meningitis belt. So obviously there are some bacteria that are prevalent in certain parts of the world. Help us understand what they are. Yeah, the meningitis belt in Africa, they're talking mostly about meningococcal meningitis, um, but also pneumococcal meningitis. And just what is the distinction between those? Uh, they're, they're both very aggressive pathogens that cause serious disease, including meningitis. And in that area in Africa, they have very high rates of infection. We don't have that, that same particular type of um, meningococcus in the United States, and but we have relatives. And that's a bacteria. Those are all bacteria. So what yeah. you're just describing, the more serious types that occur, for example, on that African belt are basically bacteria that will cause the meningitis and can be life-threatening. That's correct. Okay. So in the United States, what's the prevalence of bacterial meningitis, the more serious kind? It's actually quite low, and it's lower than it has been historically. Uh, we're at the lowest rates ever. And that speaks to the success of our vaccine programs because we have vaccines, very effective vaccines, against the most common causes of bacterial meningitis. Okay, I'm going to talk to you more about I want to find out more about the whole vaccination program because obviously that's very, very important in terms of prevention. Um, what basically, there's some variety or some variability in terms of what age groups or the kinds of bacteria that strike different age groups, is that true? Absolutely true. You know, in newborns, we're always very concerned about things like group B strep meningitis. Um, in, in later infancy and in childhood, that's a very uncommon cause of meningitis. Um, but pneumococcal meningitis, this streptococcus pneumoniae, it's a relative of the bacteria that causes strep throat, that's the one that is common across all age groups. So that one you really want to be on the alert for because it can really affect everyone. So let's talk about who's most at risk. I mean, you know, we mentioned newborns, for example. Obviously, you would think that a newborn baby would be highly uh, vulnerable 
if, if, if infected. But what are the kinds of factors that, that determine risk? Age, the very young, the very old. Those who are under-immunized, either because they're too young to have received their full complement of vaccines um, or are not vaccinated at all for whatever reason. Um, in some circumstances, people have medical conditions that place them at increased risk for bacterial meningitis. They're, some underlying kind of comorbidity, something. Yeah, or their immune system just doesn't know how to recognize it and fight it off. Or even um, something fairly simple like they don't have a spleen. The spleen's very important as a, uh, an immune organ to prevent meningitis. Does that run in family? I don't mean the issue of a spleen, obviously, but... Can, can, is there a genetic predisposition, or have they ever seen any kind of hereditary pattern where people are more likely to be susceptible to something like meningitis than others? Uh, there are certain uh, inborn or inherited immune deficiencies that can run in families that place them at increased risk for all sorts of invasive bacterial infections, including meningitis. But there's also a very rare um, complement deficiency that places people at specific risk for meningococcal meningitis. When you say a complement deficiency, help us understand what you mean. Yeah, the complement is, are, these are proteins, they're part of your immune systems um, that help prevent certain types of infections or to uh, fight certain types of infections. And we know that um, very specific protein deficiencies, extremely rare, but if you have it, you're at a very high risk for um, developing meningococcal meningitis. And that's the bacterial kind. Bacterial so that, kind. So that really puts you at great risk for... It could be life-threatening, basically. Yes. What are some of the other factors that play a role? You said medical conditions. How about you mentioned college campuses before. Why would you be more apt to pick this up in that kind of a setting? Is it the close quarters? Is it the shared dorm, You know, the shared bathrooms, dormitories? Help us understand so, that. All of the above. So well, what we learned um, several decades ago in the military barracks, if you take young, healthy adults and you bring them from different parts of the United States all together in the same place, and they're living very, in very close quarters, you're stressing them because they're in boot camp and their um, immune systems get stressed from the, uh, the, um, the job that they have to right. do, mm -hmm. um, that outbreaks of meningococcal meningitis are particularly high in that circumstance. Colle Go ahead. College Go ahead. campuses have... Uh, catered residence halls that aren't that much different, if you think about it, from a military barracks. It, that sounds very like, very, very analogous, actually. Yeah. So, so we know that in a, um, a catered residence hall on a college campus, the rates of meningococcal meningitis are about 16 times higher than in the general population. Wow, that's very significant. How about parts of the world? I mean, we've mentioned the African belt, and we mentioned, uh, you know, that it's lower here in the United States due to prevention preventive measures. But, you know, is it generally that some of these kinds of diseases are more prevalent kind of in, as you said, the African belt or other parts of the world? Yeah. So the meningitis belt right across sub-Saharan Africa, even um, if you continue that right across into Asia, there are certain types of meningococcal infections that are much more common in those areas. So if you're going to travel there, make sure you're immunized. I think that's a crucial point. <laughs> if you're just joining us, you're listening to Upstate's Health Link on air. I'm Linda Cohen, along with infectious disease expert Dr. Joseph Domakowski. We're talking about meningitis. So what are the signs and symptoms? You mentioned earlier you get a, a roaring headache. How do you know you have meningitis? Uh, well, usually you'll have a fever, and then your head will start to hurt. 
and often your neck will get very stiff where you can't bend your chin right down to your chest. Um, that, that is a, a consequence of having meningeal inflammation. Your, these membranes around your brain are inflamed. So anytime you stretch them by moving your head around, moving your neck around, uh, it causes extreme pain. Is that irrespective of whether it's bacterially um, based or virally based? Would you have the similar symptoms regardless of the type? Similar symptoms, but they do tend to be more severe um, and more rapidly progressive from bacterial infection. How about light sensitivity? Um, very common. So we call that photophobia. You know, you're afraid of the light. You just want um, you want a quiet room. You want to be in the dark, and you you don't want any bright lights because they will make your headache so Sounds much like worse. Sounds like me with a migraine. <laughs> it, it, it's much like a migraine <laughs> headache. Yes, exactly. Right. So um, basically, if you were to have and su survive, obviously viral, you do survive in most cases. But if you were to have bacterial meningitis and survive it, are there long-term effects? of this kind of inflammation of the meninges around the brain? Absolutely. So in the most serious circumstances, people die from bacterial meningitis. For those who do survive, the most common complication is hearing loss or even deafness. But we also know that if you develop bacterial meningitis as a young child, there are developmental difficulties that happen along the way. And we only know what those are as we follow the child as they're growing and developing. For adults, they may have very serious um, brain injury in the form of a stroke. It looks very much like a stroke. So there are all sorts of neurologic complications that can happen. And those don't necessarily disappear. I mean, they are long they potentially very long-lasting. Uh, many are permanent. About one in five with bacterial meningitis will have a, a long-term permanent consequence from it. So how is it spread? In other words, we know those bacteria are out there in some parts of the world or in college campuses or whatever. What's the method, the means of, of spreading the disease? So for the three big ones, the three bacteria that are most commonly causing men bacterial meningitis, uh, these are bacteria that normally inhabit the, the nose and the throat of human beings. It's just that if you are one of these carriers... You're not sick because your immune system has seen it already and you're already protected. So there are that, I want to just kind of interrupt <coughs> you here. So there are people who are carriers, much like typhoid Mary way back, that, that whole story about someone who could basically spread the disease but never be ill from it. And those exist in, in, in bacterial meningitis as well. That does happen, yes. And that's exactly where these bacteria come from, from the nose and throat of people who aren't even sick. Wow. And so, but it's spread in what way? Is, is it the secretions? In other words, is it the kind of thing that if you've washed your hands in the same sink, let's say in a dorm room, and that person has sneezed into the sink, for example, that you might then pick up those droplets and be infected? Is that the idea? So in the medical term for it is droplet spread, but that means to be in close enough proximity to the person that has that bacteria, either from being a carrier or from being infected with it. And they're coughing, singing, sneezing, otherwise, um, you know, releasing Exuding, those droplets. <laughs> droplets into the air. Yeah. Exactly. And then you have to be basically the recipient of those droplets in real time. It's not like it can live or can they live for periods of time on surfaces no you need to inhale them as they are floating through the air that's what droplets um, are so you have to be in close enough proximity to the person while they are um, exuding these so are, are college campuses places like that do they take 
adequate precaution in terms of if, if a case is identified, I would think from everything I've heard and you've talked about in other types of infectious diseases, there's a certain kind of um, uh, protocol that is undertaken to kind of isolate people and make sure that anyone who's come in contact with them is kind of kept away from other people. Right. So uh, especially for meningococcal meningitis, because it is so rapidly progressive and has such a short incubation period, that's the one that's usually happening that we hear about on the college campuses. So the first time that happens on a college campus, that um, particular individual is going to be hospitalized because they're very sick. Um, The immediate response is important because we want to give antibiotic prevention or antibiotic prophylaxis to those who were the droplet recipients from that individual, the roommate or anyone else who had very close contact with that individual. So it's almost like it's it's an attempt to control. I know there's certain terminology you use in infectious disease, but you do certain kinds of control actions where you identify the, the likely potential candidates and then you give prophylactic therapy to them, much like you might even do with a Zika virus or something of that nature. Um, Exactly. So that we know that the close contacts for this infection need to get antibiotics in a short period of time because if they were exposed and that bacteria is incubating in them and planning to cause a problem for them, antibiotics will prevent that from happening. So that's the question. So then we're talking about treatment. So do we have adequate? I know there's always been this talk about antibiotic resistance and strains of various types of these bugs that are kind of now superbugs and they're resistant to these uh, antibiotic tool toolkit that we have. Currently, do we have adequate antibiotics to fight men- meningococcal meningitis and others of that nature? Meningococcal meningitis, uh, from a medical standpoint, is easy to treat. The, the common antibiotics that we would use in someone who we suspected had bacterial meningitis before we knew that it was meningococcal will always still work. So we really have, we have the, the armamentarium to basically fight meningitis currently. Yes. If we, if we recognize it quickly enough, we can fight it. That's correct, yeah. But how about prevention? In the little bit of time we have left, we talked about vaccination. Give us an overview of what's happening in terms of vaccines. Who's getting vaccinated, how frequently, and how effective is it? So we um, implemented in the U.S. Haemophilus influenza B vaccine in the 1980s. We implemented pneumococcal vaccine in the 1990s, and we introduced meningococcal vaccine in 2005. So those are the three big players, and we have vaccines that can protect against them. So so we are immunizing the, um, the young children and the infants as appropriate, and for the adolescents and the the teenagers, we're giving them the meningococcal vaccine. And so basically there is a vaccination protocol and people, I think the bottom line needs to be underscored here is that vaccines save lives and that people really need to follow their, their, the protocol for those kinds of vaccinations that their pediatricians or their general internists recommend. In every single country where these vaccines have been implemented, rates of bacterial meningitis have dropped like a stone. Wonderful news. Thanks so much for coming in. You're always incredibly informative. My guest has been Dr. Joseph Domikowski, Pediatric Infectious Disease Specialist and the Director of the Global Maternal Child and Pediatric Health Program at Upstate Medical University. I'm Linda Cohen. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on air.